All right. Well, hey, good morning. Great to see you. Good to see a lot of red out there. Hey, let's go ahead and dismiss kids to Children's Church. So grade six and down, we've got a special program planned for you. So you guys can head on your way. As Steve mentioned at the beginning, today is kind of an upward Sunday um, here, and so if I don't know you, I want to introduce myself to you. My name is Glenn, um, along with my son Andrew. We are the coaches of the third and fourth grade girls Aces Upward Basketball Team, and we are having a great time. It's just amazing because every year you kind of get a new group of of kids that come, and and before long you just find yourself really bonding with these kids, and you just really enjoy them, kind of love being with them, and so uh, we want to welcome all of our Upward families here today. Also, I get it, there is a um, football game on later this afternoon. Trust me, I am very aware of this fact. It's at 3.30, I knew that actually. I turned out I even knew what time it started. Um, But I don't know about you, but I'm kind of glad that you have like church in the morning and the Super Bowl in the afternoon. Otherwise, I could get my heart seriously out of whack. And so first thing we're going to do is we are going to worship Jesus. We're going to open up his word together um, and uh, spend some time in that. So, uh, and then this afternoon, uh, at least I'm going to be watching that game. So anyways, uh, good to be with you. Uh, Whether you're rooting for the Niners or the Chiefs, uh, God loves everybody here. And so everybody's welcome. It's just a good reminder that God's arms are really big and wide. So anyways, well, hey, today we are beginning a brand new series on the miracles in the Gospel of John called Signs of the King. So hopefully you got some message notes uh, when you came in. You're going to want to grab those, pull those out. But since we're talking about signs, I thought it would be appropriate that we begin by looking at a few hopefully kind of humorous signs, because you see all kinds of, of different signs out there, and churches love to kind of use their signs to, to do something a little funny. Like, for instance, you've got this one here that says, uh, honk if you love Jesus, text while driving if you want to meet him. <laughs> so it's kind of like an evangelistic public service announcement. Don't text, but if you do, we know what can I do for you. So uh, this one right here says, um, our church is like fudge sweet with a few nuts. Uh, Probably a little too honest, but yeah, I could get that. Um, This next one actually is kind of a a deep, kind of theological one. It's actually at a synagogue. Adam and Eve, first ones to ignore the apple terms and conditions. Get it? Think about that a little bit. So, um, and then sometimes churches are just a little confrontational, um, like this one here who writes, choose the bread of life or you are toast. But my favorite part about it, Grace Baptist Church. Grace Baptist Church. We just want you to know. So, but it's not only churches. Businesses sometimes can do some funny stuff. Uh, like this one that says this, uh, push to open. If that doesn't work, pull. If both don't work, try the actual entrance around the corner. <laughs> sometimes signs can be a little personal. Uh, this one made me laugh. How about this one right here? Uh, this work center has been accident-free since, since Joe left. Let's, let's be honest, people, we know where they were coming from. Of course, as we were talking about, today's a big sports day, and so it seems like signs and sports go together. Um, so for instance, this guy dressed up like Jesus, wanted to get his point across to the coach. He said, my dad says, run the ball. Run the ball. We can do that. So uh, this guy, I kind of relate to him, although he's got a little bit out of whack. Honey? Call me when your water breaks. <laughs> I know. Yeah, that's wrong. I don't think that's right at all. But, but go angels, right? So, 
couple more. This, uh, this one right here was definitely an upward parent. We like where their head's at in this one right here before the Super Bowl. Man, I just hope both teams have fun today. I just really hope both teams have fun. And last but not least, this one uh, came out just this week over in the Bay Area. It says this. It says, God has no favorites. Sign guy does. Go Niners. So... <laughs> And that's pretty much where we are coming from this morning. So, well, hey, as I said, between now and Easter, we're in this series. It's going to be called Signs of the King. And we're going to be looking at seven different miracles in the book of John and how each one of these kind of point us, even direct us to who Jesus really is and also what it means to us as his followers. So all of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are very intentional with what they include in their their gospel accounts, right? They they could have included all kinds of things, so they have to narrow it down, choose the things that, that, that they choose to include, and John is especially intentional with the seven uh, miracles that he includes. Um, so seven in the Bible is a significant number. Seven is a, a number for perfection or completion, and John uses the number seven quite a bit. Um, in the Gospel of John, there are seven I am statements that Jesus makes about himself. Uh, there are seven feasts or festivals that Jesus attends. There are seven women in the Gospel of John, and there are only seven miracles included in the whole Gospel of John. Even though we know that Jesus did at least 40, most of the other Gospels include probably 20 or more uh, different miracles, but John only records seven as if he's trying to make a point about the perfection and completion uh, of Christ. The other thing that John does is really interesting is he doesn't even really call them miracles. You see, Matthew, Mark, and Luke use a couple different words when they write about Jesus' miracles that emphasize like the power of Jesus to do a miracle or even the kind of the mysterious wonder of the miracle. So, so that, those are the words that they use. But John chooses a different word that is best translated as signs. Signs. He says, signs direct us to something, point us to something. So John says, I'm including these seven that they would be signs to point you to Christ. In fact, as you get to the very end of the gospel, this is after Jesus has risen from the dead, John kind of makes this very clear what his intentions are. In John chapter 20, uh, verse 30, he says this. Check this out. He says, Jesus performed many other what? signs in the presence of his disciple, which are not recorded in this book. There there are all kinds I could have included. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. And I love it that John just like puts his cards right on the table. He says, I've only chosen seven miracles. I'll tell you why I included the ones that I did. I told you these, I've given you these so that they would point you so that you might know that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, that you might know that Jesus is the king is the way we're saying that Messiah and king, very similar uh, words there. And by believing in that, you might have life and that you might have the fullness of life. 
And so for the next seven weeks, between now and Easter, we're going to be digging into these seven signs. And I feel like God's almost kind of given me a, just a, a vision for what it could look like here at our church. Because think of all the, as we approach spring, all the new growth and life that is going to spring up out of the earth in the next seven weeks as we move towards spring. What if that kind of same sort of life and growth would take place in this church as we believe, and, and it, because we believe, we experience life as well. So that's what we are all about. That is our goal between now and Easter. I invite you to join in with us on that. It also goes with our 90 days through the Gospels as we're reading through the Gospels together. They won't always line up with the weekly reading, but it covers those same kinds of concepts. So let's jump into the very first miracle, which is all about uh, water to wine or the first sign, because they say you only have one chance to make a first impression, right? And so this is Jesus's first impression. I heard another pastor compare it to, let's just say Jesus, this is not what he was, but let's just say Jesus was a politician who was kind of launching a campaign. Or maybe he was a business that was launching a new brand. If you're one of those things, that very first introduction, you wanted to to really describe who you are and what you're all about. You want people to to stay right on message with you. And so this is Jesus' kind of unveiling. Jesus is revealing of himself, and he only gets one chance to make this first impression. And so he gives us a miracle that actually reveals a great deal about him. So if you don't have your Bibles open, turn to John chapter 2, power on your Bible if that's uh, what you're doing. And we're going to spend the majority of our time today just kind of walking through primarily the details. John gives us a ton of just fascinating details about this miracle. And then at the very end, we're going to just make a couple um, applications that I think are are super um, significant. Let me tell you, as we study this this morning, too, we're going to kind of be tracking with two stories. We talk about this on occasion. We're, on the one hand, going to be looking at what they call the lower story. When I say the lower story, I'm talking about all kind of the very earthy and very human details that make this story what it is. And there are a ton of, as I said, fascinating lower story details um, in, this, in this account. But we're also going to be tracking with what you call the upper story, the upper story that we see that behind all of these things that, that, that John and Jesus are pointing us to something much bigger, a much more bigger plan and purpose that God has for the world and for our lives to, together. So uh, that's what we're going to do. Everybody with me? John chapter 2, verse 1. Maybe you've read this before. Uh, Let's just dig into it together because it is just amazing. And John chapter 2, verse 1 says this. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. And Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. So let's just stop right there because there's some really interesting details right in that that very first couple verses, starting with, did you notice that this takes place on the third day, the third day? So Bible scholars, you should be asking the question, the third day from what? Well, in the lower story, it would refer to the third day from the last event that took place at the end of John 1, which was the calling of the disciples. So in other words, this is only three days after Jesus had called that first group of disciples. If, if Jesus called them on a Monday, this is Wednesday. So they have no idea what they are in for. They knew enough that they would leave their nets and they would follow after Jesus, but they really didn't know what they were getting into. So in the lower story, this just kind of gives us the timeline. 
But in the upper story, you might already be able to guess what, G, or what John is trying to unveil to us. Because when you talk about the third day, what do you most think about? The resurrection of Jesus. And so already John is pointing us to something more significant, something deeper that is still to come. By the way, the third day in the Bible is, is also very significant. The third day is a time where you see God on the move. So if you look throughout the Bible at kind of third day sort of experiences, on the third day of creation, it's when life first comes out. It's when uh, the plants and the vegetation first start to, to spring forth. It's on the third day when Abraham is taking his son uh, Isaac up on the mountain to sacrifice him. And on the third day, God intervenes and provides a ram to pay for uh, the price. It's on the third day when the Israelites are sitting there aside the Jordan River and they've just got to get into the other side so that they can go into the promised land. And on the third day, God stops up the river and they go into the promised land. On the third day of Jonah being in the belly of a whale, God shows his mercy and spits him out onto the, to the beach. And I love there's just an amazing scripture from Hosea uh, chapter 6. Check out this scripture. It says this. Hosea chapter 6 says, after two days, he will revive us. But on the third day, he will restore us. And so you've got, you see this kind of lower story and upper story uh, things that are both going on as John is giving us the timeline for the disciples, but also foreshadowing something much bigger that is at play in this miracle here. Second thing we should notice is that, that all this takes place as Jesus is attending a wedding. And I don't know about you, but especially as a, a dad who's got a daughter planning a wedding these days, I just love the fact that Jesus takes time out of his crazy, busy schedule as he's launching his ministry, calling disciples, and yet he takes time out of that to just do the very human thing uh, of going to celebrate with this bride and groom at their wedding, right? Isn't that, that a great thing? Now, uh, a wedding in the Jewish culture would have been a very big deal, a multi-day event, probably went on for at least three days, um, lots of food, lots of wine, lots of dancing, lots of joy. And so Jesus attends this wedding, and as we're going to see, Jesus is the one who makes the difference in this wedding. Jesus is the difference maker in this wedding. And it made me think, if you're, for sure, if you're planning a wedding, but if you're here today and you are married, make sure that you are inviting Jesus into your marriage, not just into your marriage, but into the center of your marriage, into the center of your wedding. Why? Because he makes all the difference. Jesus' presence at this wedding literally transforms all that takes place. Third detail before we just keep moving on here, just something that is worth noting, is all of this took place in the little town of Cana. Cana. Now, it's actually, there are actually two ancient cities uh, that are, go by the name Cana or have the name Cana in them. Uh, both of them are actually quite close together. They're just a little to the west of the Sea of Galilee in kind of a, a rolling hills region of, of Israel. Um, it's a very fertile place. In fact, archaeologists have discovered uh, near both of these towns with the name Cana, they've uh, uh, discovered like large kind of estate-style homes with, like, terraced vines and wine presses and wine cellars. And so people say that it's almost like Cana is like Lodi of its day, 
right? It's like the award-winning wine region of its day. It produced a lot of wine uh, for, for a big part of Israel. Why is that significant? Well, the people in this wine country are not going to be tricked by, by something, something no good. They know what they're looking for. They know uh, they're not going to be fooled by anything but the best. So, Jesus attends this wedding in Galilean wine country, and scandal of all scandals takes place. Look back with me at verse 3. It says this, So when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Now, again, in that culture, hosting a wedding was a huge social event, and for this family to run out of wine was probably more than just like a kind of a social faux pas. It was a much bigger deal than that. It's actually something that could have damaged their reputation even for, for years to come. And so when, when they say, hey, we're early in this wedding and there is no more wine, this is a big deal, first of all, to the bride and groom and to the families that are putting on this wedding. By the way, as a pastor, one of the things I love to do is I love to do weddings, and I've been a part of a lot of weddings, and so you, you guys need to know something always goes wrong at a wedding, right? Everybody gets that, right? I mean, I, I've seen, and I've seen a lot. I've done um, outdoor weddings in the middle of a pouring rainstorm. So in fact, the one I'm thinking about, they brought out, a, uh, they brought out an umbrella for the bride and an umbrella for the groom, and both of them kind of dripped right to the middle, which was where I was standing. <laughs> So I've had a bride pass out. I've had a groomsman get sick in the middle of a wedding. I've seen all kinds of unruly ring bears and, you know, flower girls, you name it. I've seen uh, them do that. I, I was at a wedding where they launched butterflies. I've talked about that before. and The butterflies didn't fly, right? I was at another outside wedding out on the grass, and the groom dropped the bride's ring into the grass. And normally, you'd just look down and pick it up, but just the way the grass is, it fell right down into the grass. So the good news is they found the ring, not until the groom was like on his hands and knees looking for the thing. Probably the worst one that I was thinking about for myself, kind of the most embarrassing one for me is, um, this was a couple years ago, uh, I got the time of the wedding mixed up. And about five minutes before the wedding, they called me and said, hey, Pastor Glenn, are you coming to the wedding? And I'm like, ah, fortunately, it was here at the church. I live pretty close by. So I threw on my suit. I rushed to the wedding. It wasn't embarrassingly late. But part of what I was supposed to do is not just do the wedding, but prepare the, the communion. They were taking communion. And so I was supposed to get the bread and the wine out there. And I had no time to do that. So all, like our wedding coordinator is like sneaking out from the back, trying to place the stuff there. And by the way, that couple is here this morning. And uh, <laughs> still Sorry. Still sorry about that. <laughs> Still hoping you forgive me and your uh, parents too. But anyways, so the point is, stuff happens at weddings, right? I could go on and on. And I, I bet some of you have some outstanding things that went wrong in a wedding um, story. But running out of wine at this Jewish wedding was a big deal, right? And so the point is, stuff happens. Well, Mary, who knows Jesus better than anybody else at this time, right? A lot of, even his own disciples barely know him at this time. But Mary knows him. And, and so she goes to Jesus and she says this, um, Jesus there's no more wine. They're out of wine. And then Jesus' answer is kind of famous. He says this, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Hey, this is kind of a side note, but if you're a man and you're married and you're looking for like a life verse, have you given some thought? (laughs) 
I'm just saying, I'm just saying, especially on Super Bowl Sunday, honey, I got some chores for you to do. Oh, sweetie, John 2-4. I, you know, I'd love to. My hour has not yet come. Completely joking. I am not recommending that. I am not recommending that. I'm just saying God's word is inspired. Um, that's all I'm trying to say. But I do want to, I do want to make the point here that, that Jesus is not being disrespectful to his mother because it comes across in English like that. It, we would never say to our mom, woman, you know, why do you involve me in this um, unless you wanted to, you know, be in big trouble. But uh, in that day, the, the, especially the term woman, it was kind of a more formal term, but it's definitely respectful. It'd be more like saying ma'am or, you know, something like that. Ma'am, I'm, you know, why are you... Uh, involving me. But, but what Jesus is really getting at here in this statement is a much bigger issue. And it's the question of launching his ministry. Remember, this is still very new. And what he says is, my hour has not yet come. And again, as we study the gospel of John, this idea of my hour is a very, you could even call it technical, very specific term. My hour refers to the time of Jesus's death on the cross and ultimately his, his season of suffering. By the way, John uses this phrase, my hour, seven times um, in his gospel to refer to this. So think about this. In the lower story, Mary is just like, hey, Jesus, you know, could we help this couple out? They're really embarrassed. You know, maybe we could do something to help them out. But in the upper story, Jesus is thinking not even really about that wedding banquet. Jesus in the upper story is thinking ahead to a wedding banquet that is still to come. In the book of Revelation, it describes it like this, the wedding banquet of the Lamb. And Jesus knew that the, that the entrance, what was going to be required to invite people to this ultimate wedding banquet of the Lamb, of eternal peace and joy and in the presence of God, was going to be a very costly thing. It was going to require that his hour would come. So the sign that Jesus is about to perform here of turning water to wine, if you think about it, it doesn't really cost Jesus much of, of anything, right? Jesus just kind of does it like that. But I really believe in this statement, my hour has not yet come, Jesus is thinking ahead to this other w- wedding that is going to cost him dearly. And he's not sure, is now the time? And God, perhaps through Mary, encourages him, move forward. So Jesus says, hey, my hour has not yet come, but wise godly Mary, I don't know how all that went down, seems to sense that maybe his time has come. And I just love this. Uh, His mother said to the servants, verse 5, do whatever he tells you. Isn't that a great statement? Jesus' mother says, do whatever he tells you. And again, Mary knows Jesus better than anyone. And Mary knows more than anybody what Jesus is capable of right? Think of Mary's life. Mary had experienced an angel appearing to her. Mary had experienced giving birth as a virgin. Mary had lived with Jesus for 30 years. She saw him as a 12-year-old teaching at the temple. Maybe, I don't know what other miracles Jesus did before this time. The the Gospels don't explain that. Maybe there was that time that he ran out of milk and he just points to it and fills up. I don't know what it is, but we do know that Mary knew Jesus and she knew what to look. And so her response is this, because I know who he is, just do whatever he tells you to do. Just whatever it is, do whatever you tell, he tells you to do. I don't know if Mary knew what Jesus was going to do, but whether she did or she didn't, she, she got it right. Whatever Jesus tells you to do, do that. 
In fact, do whatever he tells you to do is actually an ultimate prayer of trust and surrender. And I think, can you pray that prayer? And maybe more importantly than just praying that prayer, can you live that kind of life? Jesus, I don't know what's coming, good or bad, but I want to do whatever you tell me to do. I don't want to overplay this, but, you know, because Steve showed that, that video of Brock Purdy at the beginning of the, the service. I thought it was great. Um, but there was a quote from Brock Purdy that I saw this week. Probably some of you saw this as well. And um, it came at the, uh, at the end of their last game, so two weeks ago, and uh, the 49ers at halftime were behind by 17 points. I was so mad, and I had nothing to do with the game. Brock Purdy, though, who's, you know, had been, not been playing well at all. His team had not been playing well at all. And yet, as a, a, a Christian, he knew that he could ask God for the desires of his heart. And so he talked about, you know, praying to God at halftime. And this is what he says. He said, I put my faith and trust in him, and he's gotten me where I am. So when I'm down by 17 at half... Honestly, I'm just thinking, all right, God, you've taken me here. Now get this, and win or lose, I'm going to glorify you. And that's my peace. That's the joy. That's the steadfastness. That's where I get it from. That's the honest truth. So he leaned into, uh, so I leaned into that, and sure enough, we were able to come back. And, and to me, what I'm saying is it's not even about who won or lost the game, but it's this attitude that says whether we win or whether we lose, I'm going to do whatever Jesus says to do. And I feel like that's kind of Mary's attitude. Jesus, I don't even know, but hey, you do whatever Jesus tells you to do. Verse 6 says this. So nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. Each of them were holding, what, from 20 to 30 gallons. So again, John is very specific with the details. That is a lot of details, lower story details for us to know that these were stone jars. He wants us to know uh, that these were stone jars. Stone jars, by the way, would have been present in this house only for really one reason and one reason alone. They weren't like the common clay jars that were used for everyday things like holding water or wine or things like that, these stone jars, their singular purpose in that home would have been for ceremonial washing. Not just kind of your regular, you know, bath, but your ceremonial ritual cleansing. It was part of the ritual cleansing that you did to make yourself clean before God. That's what they kept in these stone jars because stone was considered uh, incorruptible. Stone would have been very expensive, hard to get, uh, but it, it was incorruptible. If you put your ceremonial washing in a clay jar, the clay kind of rubs off and makes it dirty, but in a stone jar, it stays clean. And so Jesus is, or so what we see here is, is these were used specifically for ceremonial um, washing. Again, that is a lower story detail, packed with upper story significance. And so Jesus says to his servants, hey, fill the jar with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And then something like this is probably what happened. Let's take a look. Everyone, please step outside. Just for a moment, Thomas.
Once you make that first cut into the stone, it can't be undone. It sets in motion a series of choices. What used to be a shapeless block of limestone or granite begins its long journey of transformation. And it will never be the same. So again, you know, that's just, I want to be clear, that's just one interpretation. We don't know exactly how that would have gone down, but it's great to have that kind of visual um, picture of that. But here's what I want you to see in this, is that Jesus takes something very common, in fact, the most common thing of all water, right? Very ordinary. And he transforms it, he turns it into something extraordinary. And with this sign, Jesus is pointing us to something, and he's demonstrating Jesus's power over creation. In fact, think about this. This takes place at the very beginning of John chapter 2. In John chapter 1, John has made some incredible claims about Jesus already. He starts his gospel by saying this, Jesus, who was the Word, was in the beginning. Before there was anything, there was Jesus. For John to use those in the beginning words That's Genesis 1 words. That's creator of the universe words. And John, just one chapter earlier, had made the claim that Jesus was this and Jesus was the creator. And now, just less than a chapter later, we see that Jesus backs that up by taking something very ordinary and plain and turning it into something extraordinary and of great value. The Word spoke creation into existence, and now when He speaks, miracle happens. And so here's what I want you to think about. Just think, if He can take ordinary water and turn it into the finest of wines, imagine what He wants to do with your life. Imagine what He wants to do with my life. So they take it to the master of the banquet, the the wine guy who's the expert in the middle of the wine country, and verse 10, or verse, the end of verse 9, and verse 10 says this. So he called the bridegroom aside, the master of the banquet did. And he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. He's blown away by this. This may not be the best example, but I was just thinking today, you know, if you're going to say you're going to go to a Super Bowl party, and, and you get there, and when you get there, the host has got, you know, some 
tasty guacamole out there on the, the table and some chips and you eat that and it's, you know, it's good and, and you kind of fill up a little bit. But then uh, um, it gets to about the fourth quarter, the guacamole's all but gone and, you know, 49ers are up by two scores at this point and, <laughs> hey, my example. Okay, they're up by three scores at this point and... Um, and then at that point, the host brings out like the best guacamole you've ever tasted. You think I can't imagine. Um, and you know what I thought of that? Because I actually saw uh, a, a survey or a, something that said, do you know today or this weekend, they planned on selling 70 million avocados in the United States, 70 million avocados. So somebody's making guacamole, um, that is sure. But that is not the point. Can I tell you what the point is? I want to be crystal clear on what the point is. John tells us what the point is in verse 11. This is what he says. He says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. What a great story. And we see so much in there, so much that reveals God's glory or reveals Christ's glory. And yet if you think about it, that's kind of a strange first miracle. Think about this. After all, nobody's sick and in need of healing, right? There's no, you know, leper there. There's nobody who's possessed by a demon. There's no, you know, buddy blind from birth. There's nobody, you know... 5,000 people that are hungry and need bread. Nobody's dead, you know. It's just a wedding. It's just a wedding. Why would Jesus make that his first miracle, his first sign? Was it just to like, you know, obey his mom? I don't think that's what it was. I want to share a couple of thoughts with you in in terms of application. These are not original with me, um, but I think they, they teach us a lot. Why, why does Jesus do the things that he does? I want to suggest two things. The first one is this. Is you guys, Jesus is here and Jesus came to bring you joy. Jesus came to fill your life with joy. Because here's what I want you to imagine. Imagine that you're the family and you've run out of wine. It's this social disaster. And then all of a sudden you find out that there's all this great wine. Imagine the joy that you would have felt. Imagine if you were one of the guests and you were like, oh, well, this wedding's going to be over early. And then they roll out the the finest wine. Imagine you're the banquet master and you're thinking how you're going to explain this. And all of a sudden you turn and you look and there were six stone jars of 20 to 30 gallons each that had now been turned into wine. That's about 150 gallons. By the way, I did the math for you. That is about 900 bottles of wine, which by the way, to me seems very extravagant, a little over the top, but I think Jesus is trying to make a point, which is that he came to bring you joy. Now, I want to say something. I want to be real clear on this too, because I know that all across this church, people listening online, um, you know the damage that alcohol can do. You've experienced it in your life. You've experienced the loss of control, the damage it's done to your family, the hurt it's brought to you and, and to others. And, and, and so, honestly, I think pastors kind of struggle with this thing because it's like Jesus just made 150 gallons of wine. That seems like a lot. But here's what I want you to know this morning. Um, first of all, if that's a struggle for you, we would love to talk with you about that. We're not meant to be controlled by, by wine or alcohol or any other substance. We're meant to, to find our joy not from outside sources. We find our joy first and foremost um, from Christ. But here's what I want you to think about today is, um, 
is, uh, is that, that, that Jesus does this to demonstrate what it means for us to experience kind of an extraordinary joy. The point is it's not about the wine. It's a point about Jesus uh, taking something ordinary and turning it into something magnificent, and that should bring us joy. In fact, if you think back, remember John, who was present for all of these seven signs. What does he say about why Jesus gave us these signs? And let me just bring that verse back up again. In John chapter 20, this is what we looked at the very beginning. He says, these are written that you may believe, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And when John writes about life, he's certainly thinking of two things. He's thinking about the eternal life of spending eternity with God in heaven. John 3.16 is that. But you know what else he's thinking about? He's thinking about the abundant life right now that Jesus speaks of in John 10.10, that he came that you might have life and have it to the full. So Jesus came to give you joy. And so why do you suppose Christians are not known as the most joyful people out there? Because I hate to say it, that's not at least the reputation that we have. Oftentimes, it's just the opposite. Whether it's true or not, Christians get pegged as sour, stuffy, judgy. You guys, our rabbi, the one that we follow, was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. He was neither of those things, but he was so filled with joy and kindness to others that people didn't know what to do with him because they saw that joy. In fact, when you think about um, the most common way that the kingdom of God is referred to in the Bible, do you know what it is? It's a party. It's a celebration. Look at Isaiah chapter 25. I'll put it up here on the screen. And I love this because it's actually the same language that you see in the book of Revelation. But Isaiah writes and he prophesies and he says, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast for you, a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wines. And then it's almost like Isaiah forgets what he says because he says the same thing over again. Oh, by the way, it's the best of meats and the finest of wines. And then look at the next verse. It says this. It says, and he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces and he will remove his people's disgrace from all of the earth. The Lord has spoken. So if you are a follower of Jesus, your life should be characterized by joy. And if that's not true. Can I just remind you of the joy? But here's the deal. I know it's hard to, 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 to stay in that joy, to stay that joy. I've, I've shared this story before, but I just was thinking about it, and I thought I'd share it again. Um, it goes back a few years ago. It was right when I'd first become the, the senior pastor of the church, the lead pastor of the church. I'd been a, a staff pastor for a number of years, and, and I would like to think that I had a fairly joyful outlook on life and those kind of things. And I became the senior pastor, and right away, not because anybody put it on me, but I started to feel this weight, this burden, like all of this stuff suddenly depended on, on me. And I felt like I had to carry this stuff. And you know what it did? It weighted me down, and one of the worst things that it did is it robbed my joy. And I, I just, I don't know, it affected my mood. It affected my the way I looked at things. I used to look at someone and, and offer them grace, but instead I, 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 I didn't. And I, I got in this time and it affected my mood. It affected my relationships. I think, honestly, it even affected the way I, I did my ministry, the way I preached. And, and uh, the, the thing that always stands out to me is an elder of our church who's here with us today um, came to me and took kind of a risk because he came up to me and he said, hey, Glenn, I've been watching you 
what happened to your joy? And remember, it hit me so hard to think, here, I've got the best news ever. And Jesus came to give me joy, and I was letting it burden me down. And I just share that story because I know some of you, and I can do this too, walk around weighted down by the cares of the world. That doesn't mean those weights go away, but those are Jesus's to carry. And he came that you might have joy. Second thing we see here, and we're going to wrap up pretty quickly here, is this, is Jesus not only came to to bring you joy, but Jesus came to make you clean, to make you clean. You know, hey, as a pastor, I I get to sit with people all the time, and one of the things that I've just heard dozens of times over the years is, Pastor, I just just feel dirty. I feel like I'm I'm, I'm not worthy. I can never measure up. I'm, I'm never good enough. And sometimes that's because of shameful things that, that a person is doing or, or have done in the past. Sometimes those are because of shameful things that have been done to you. But they just feel like, I, I'm, I'm just unworthy. I, can't, I just can't do it. Can I just tell you guys something that is not very popular in today's culture? You are not worthy of it. And I am not worthy. We aren't worthy of God's love and kindness to us. The Bible actually tells us that all people have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us are dirty. All of us have our stuff and our junk. And you can try as hard as you want, but you can't make yourself clean. Religions have tried to do this as long as there have been religions. Religion always tries to deal with this issue of there's sin in my life. How do I get rid of it or what do I do about it? Most religions will tell you something like, you know what you need to do? You just need to make sure that your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, right? Some religions even show you a scale and and weigh it out. Or your good karma, you know, balances out your, your bad karma. In the, the Marvel movies, it talks about there's red in your ledger that you've got to get taken care of. And in the Jewish culture of Jesus' day, it was all about ritual cleansing and obedience to the law. And so they had these stone water jars so that you could wash yourself and ceremonially somehow make yourself clean for God. Yet when Jesus takes the water from those stone jars and he turns it into wine, he is doing something in the upper story that says, uh, this is a sign of a whole new way to be in a relationship with God. There is no ritual washing that will ever be enough for you. And it's as if Jesus is saying, you know, these water jars that keep you clean, you are not going to need those anymore because I am here to make you clean once and for all. Remember the clear reason that Jesus does this sign for us so that we might believe and that we might believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And we might find that life by our relationship with the Father, not something that we earn, but by his grace we receive. Well, let me just close with this because you probably are, hopefully, are are thinking to yourself, how do I receive that? How do I get that kind of, of cleansing? And the same John who wrote this gospel actually writes a a letter um, at another time, uh, older in life, and he writes this letter to the early Christians. We have it recorded for us in what we call 1 John, and he addresses this issue of cleansing, and this is what he says. 1 John 1.8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us, will cleanse us from all unrighteousness.
righteousness. And that's God's promise. And I think we should do that right now. So would you bow your heads with me this morning? And Father, first of all, we want to thank you for these signs that you've left to us through your son, Jesus Christ, that point us to who you are. But Father, we also want to do business with what you teach us in these things. Thank you for the promise, Lord, that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to cleanse us and to purify us. And so all around the room this morning, in the chapel, in the gym, Father, we pause to bring our sins to you and to confess them to you. We would be a liar to say they're not there. And so, Father, we just want to come honest and confess them to you that we might be cleansed. Father, we know that the forgiveness of sins is not something that we have to earn. Even confessing sins over and over again doesn't remake us clean. It's that first confession of faith that imparts your grace into our life and, 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 and restores us into a right relationship with you, makes us ultimately clean once and for all. And so, Father, I just pray that this morning, if there are people that are here that have never put their trust in you, have never done what your word says, to just believe in you, that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, and that they want to find life. That, Father, for the, maybe the very first time, they would confess their sins, but also just their sin, that they're separated from you, and that we would receive you. We would turn from those sins and turn towards you, the giver of life, the creator of all good. And so, Father, if, if that represents the hearts of people around this room today, I pray that all over this room, people would pray a prayer that goes something like this. Jesus, I confess my sin to you. I know that I can't clean myself on my own. And so I want to be right with you through your sacrifice. I turn from my sin and I turn to you, Jesus. I receive you today. And in this moment, I want to begin a new life, eternal life, yes, and life of abundance on this earth. So, Father, as a church family, in this sacred moment, we pray these things together and ask that you would be honored. And we pray them in your name, Jesus. Amen.